All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Matthew, or no, Mark chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors, and we've been looking at the gospel of Mark. And we're in chapter 6 this week, and I'll, I'll start by telling you, um, what, you know, you know famous people? I mean, I know famous, famous people. You know famous people. You have people that you, you know, are on your list, your name, the, the names that you drop. Um, tell you about a guy uh, I know, John Lackey was a major league baseball pitcher 2002 to 2017. Uh, Los Angeles Angels, the Red Sox, Cardinals, Cubs. As a rookie, he has this distinction. As a rookie, he started and won game seven of the World Series. And a rookie hadn't done that for almost 100 years uh, when he did it. And so uh, he's got all these trophies. He's... He, He's truly one of the great uh, major league pitchers of the, of the 2000s. And, and that is why I, I found myself so disappointed um, in the interview that he gave after he had won as a rookie in 2002, uh, Game 7 of the World Series, that he didn't thank me. I was shocked, actually, that he didn't. I, because, and the reason I say that is because I, I, I saved John Lackey's life when he was a little kid. I was a lifeguard at the Abilene Swim Club. John Lackey was a little kid. He was a punk, and he would pick on all the older kids, and they used to play Drown John. And, um, and, and, you know, he was a wiry little kid, but, but he was getting tired, and I could tell that one more, one more, and we, would go, we were going to lose John Lackey from the world, all right? So, um, I, you know, come off the stand, uh, uh, very, I mean, I, it was perfect, really, uh, very professional, uh, came off the stand, into the water, pull John out, uh, make sure that he's okay, take him back to his parents. And, and that was it. I mean, I, without me, John, he wouldn't even have a baseball career, m much less have won uh, Game 7 of the World Series. My familiarity with John doesn't mean I know him. Just because we grew up in the same town, just because we know some of the same people, just because on a Saturday afternoon in the summer of, you know, 1984, I uh, went into the swimming pool after John. That doesn't mean I know him. He surely wouldn't say that he knows me. In Mark chapter 6, we're going to see a lot of this kind of interaction with Jesus. Jesus is going to be in his hometown. He will be uh, with his disciples. And you will see that there are people that have known Jesus all his life. There have been people that have been walking with Jesus all of his ministry. There are people close to him. And yet you see there are people that do not know him. Those that do know him don't fully understand him. 
And see, there's this danger we have as, as people who are believers, people who have, you know, walked in the faith or walked around church or walked around believers all of our life, is to have this familiarity and say, oh yeah, I know Jesus, I know all about Jesus, and yet really, at the end of the day, not know him and not understand him and not realize what it is that he's called for you if you truly are one of those that know him. Because reality is what happens. We see people get offended over and over. People that have known Jesus their whole life all of a sudden find themselves offended. Look, look with me. Mark chapter 6. Let me read some verses and we'll, uh, we'll make our way the best we can through this chapter this morning. Uh, beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 6. He, he went away from there. This is Jesus um, uh, away from... Uh, where he'd been in Capernaum. He, he went away from there and came to his hometown, Nazareth. And his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand. These are people that grew up with Jesus. These are people that had seen him as a little boy and uh, running around, and their kids went to elementary school with him. And all of a sudden, he comes back. He's a, he's a man, and he's uh, in the midst of his ministry, and he steps into the synagogue, and he begins to teach in ways that really the text will say is astounding to them. In verse 3, they ask the question, is, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And, and, and they took offense at him. But they didn't just disagree with him. They were offended. Who does he think he is? In verse 4, Jesus makes this proverbial statement. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and amongst his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. Well, the offense that they had, the word is, uh, in the Greek, it's li literally the word scandal is where, is where we get that word from. They were, it was a scandal. They were scandalized by Jesus his teaching, his wisdom, his mighty works, just, just a carpenter. And the idea in verse 5 that he could do no mighty works, it wasn't because Jesus' power was limited in any way. It was that their unbelief was limiting. Their ability to be able to experience the power and presence of Jesus was limited by their unbelief. And those that 
didn't believe were the ones that were the most familiar with him. Those that didn't see him anymore as a man, anymore as a carpenter. Today we might think anymore as a, as a good teacher or a good role model. You know, there's a lot of people who say, you know, I like Jesus. I dig Jesus. I'm not in with all the, the stuff, you know, I mean, I, but, you know, Jesus, Jesus, I got nothing against Jesus. And then all of a sudden, the reality of who Jesus is and the power of God's Word presses upon that mind and that soul and that heart and the Spirit is at work and all of a sudden, conviction of of sin, sin in, in your life, sin that you know is wrong, and, and, and the Spirit of God through the Word of God says, you know, you're, you've got to repent from that. You've got to turn from that. And all of a sudden, you find yourself offended. Oh, it's not the Jesus I know. Jesus, I know, loves everybody. Live and let live. That's what Jesus said. At least that's what I think he said. It's what I want him to say. And a Jesus that you're only familiar with, listen, is a Jesus that, that absolutely, rightly, when you see him for who he is, will be offensive to you. You know, it's interesting, you get the idea in the New Testament that his family didn't really fully believe him, didn't really fully understand who he was, even though Mary, at the, you know, the beginning of the story, has a visit from the angel. Even as Jesus' life begins to take shape and his ministry moves into full bloom and then ultimately the cross, it wasn't something she fully comprehended until the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, he's telling about the gospel. He says, listen, this is what I proclaim. Jesus, uh, you know, uh, was born. He's the Son of God, fully man, fully human. Was, uh, uh, had a ministry, did, did mighty works, was uh, arrested, was uh, tried, was convicted, was beaten, was hung on a cross, died laid in a grave for three days, and after three days, rose from the dead, and then appeared. Appeared to 5,000 people. He came to the disciples. He um, uh, went to, to Peter, all, you know, appeared to Peter, uh, which would have been a moving moment. And then it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, it says, then Jesus went to James. James's brother, and then the other disciples. Risen from the dead, seeks out his brother. Maybe it's a conversation that says, I, listen, I know your whole life you've had a hard time comprehending who I am. But James, I came to save you. And James believes you find out in Acts chapter 1, Jesus' mother there, all the brothers, all the sisters, they all believe. His brother ends up becoming a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Have you had that moment of belief, of faith? Where you find yourself offended, you know, 
Listen, we live in the place that, that the soil is rich with familiarity. And I so worry about where we live often that we have far more familiarity with Jesus than we do have faith in him. That we believe him, that we'll follow him wherever he leads us. Well, Jesus, from there in, in verse 7, he does something that's a little bit surprising. He takes these disciples, and why it's surprising is because you realize these disciples, I mean, they've been struggling with the deal all along. I mean, they, they've been there, they've been, uh, they've been close, they, they, you know, they're, they're, uh, uh, they, they've seen the, the mighty works of Jesus, they've heard his uh, teaching that was amazing. And then what Jesus does before they're, they're ready, before anybody would say they're ready, certainly they would say they're ready, he sends them out in verse 7. Look at what it says. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing except a st- on their journey except a staff. No, no bread, no bag. No money in their belts. But to wear sandals and, and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And, and if any place will not receive you and you will not li- and they will not listen to you, when, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed uh, with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jesus, what what he's doing is he's extending his authority uh, over clean spirits to the twelve. He's extending his message that he's been preaching through the twelve. And he says, listen, as you go out, it's an extension of my ministry. I, let's, let's go ahead, and, and, and I'm, you know, I'm going to preach, and then I'm going to send you to preach. Let's go ahead and saturate this area. We don't know how long they're gone. Uh, some clues from the text tell us probably not very long. What to take with him? Take nothing with him. There's this urgency. There's this, you know, uh, the, the, this itinerant idea. You're not going to be settling in very long I- anywhere. To don't take two tunics. Just take one tunic, which meant don't take a change of clothes and don't take something that you could lay down as a bed mat or, or cover you at night when, when you're sleeping and get cold. Travel light. You don't need money or bread. Stay wherever you can. And the point is Jesus was commanding them to dependence. I'm going to entrust you with my authority. And at the same time, I want you to be fully, completely, totally dependent upon me. Now listen, even right there, the call to follow Jesus, which is what Matthew's about. I mean, Matthew starts out, listen, Jesus is the Son of God. And what do we do with the Son of God? Well, the invitation is to to follow him. Follow him wherever it is that he leads you. That's discipleship. Follow him. 
And at this point, the reality is, where, hey, listen, I want to entrust you with my authority. And yet, I, I, and with that, I want you to live a lifetime of dependence upon me. A, a determined, a, a, a real, a decided dependence upon Jesus. Our discipleship so often, our following Jesus so often is betrayed here at this point, isn't it? And if there's anything that a group of independent people like less than dependence, I don't know what it is. Jesus, I want you to be dependent upon. I want you to be dependent upon me your entire life. This is the message. Well, what's interesting in verse 13 um, well, 12, you have the, the message of repent. It's more than just feeling sorry for your sin. It's, it's deliberate. It's, it's radical. It's a life-changing decision to go in another direction. It's what it means to come to Christ. As Paul will say so often, this putting off the old, putting on the new. A decision to trust in Christ and Christ alone and not yourself or anything else any longer. And as Jesus sends them out, he sends them out with this authority over demons, but he sends them out with this message, this gospel message that says, you know, abandon everything for the sake of Christ. The Word of God proclaimed into the lives of people. You find out this importance of the Word of God from Hosea. In fact, Hosea will show up in chapter 4, and he, he begins to indict the, the priests, you know, of the people, the, the people that are supposed to be leading God's people. And, and he says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. He looks at the priest and says, you've, you've rejected knowledge. You, you've rejected uh, uh, the, the role that I gave you. So God says, I reject you from being a priest. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, you've produced a people without understanding who will come to ruin. chief of all things Jesus sends us out with is his word. I like what Martin Luther said about it some, in, in reflecting upon the, the Reformation in this movement that, that changed the world in the 16th century. Luther said this, he said, for the word, the word created heaven and earth and all things the Word must do this thing, not we poor sinners. In short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no man by force, for faith must freely come without compulsion. To take myself as an example, he says, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, wrote about God's Word, otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept, 
or drank beer in Wittenberg with my friends. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. That's why Jesus sends them out independence, dependence upon him. Well, in verse 13, you have this picture. It says, they cast out demons. They anointed many with oil and were sick and healed. We don't know how long. We don't get any individualized success stories. The successes and failures seem to be secondary to their being uh, sent and them actually going. And so we're surprised when Mark doesn't move into a story here or there about one of the disciples, and yet he recounts a story that they all knew well, that everyone knew well, so much so even Josephus, the Jewish historian in the first century, told this story. It was so famous. Mark's giving the details of a story that, that sobers all of us up as readers what it means, listen, Mark in no way is soft-selling this. He, he in no way is, is uh, you know, putting any of these things in the fine print. There's a reality of life devoted to the kingdom of God. When we follow Jesus, and it is in, it is in direct opposition to a world that is in the grip of the kingdom of the enemy. He tells the story about the death of John the Baptist. He, he starts in 14, King Herod, this is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. He heard of this. He heard of Jesus. He heard of his disciples going out. Uh, Jesus' name had been made known. Some said, well, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miracles' powers are at work in him. And others said he's Elijah. And others, he's a prophet like, like one of old. But when Herod heard of it, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. There's terror in that. Herod was, uh, he kept John, you know, under guard and would have frequent conversations with him. This is John the Baptist. He was intrigued by him, never fully understand the things he talked about, but, but John made him curious you, you think, you know, Herod Antipas, the way that it right, he, he, had this, he had this soft spot for John. He, had, he, he did all, you know, he protected him, he guarded him, and, and, and brought him in for conversation and wanted to hear how it is that he saw life and how that was so different from him. You, you, you get the sense that there was a respect. Whether he believed what John was saying or not, likely he didn't. Well, what Mark does is he goes on to account the night that there was the party and um, Herodotus, who was actually his sister-in-law and his mistress, they have a big party. John had been telling Herod, hey, listen, you're in sin and you need to repent. You're sleeping with your brother's wife and, and it's wicked and you need to stop. Well, Herodotus, the, the, the mistress, the sister-in-law, she hated John. 
And so what happens is they one night, they throw a party, everybody drinks a bunch of uh, uh, whatever's being served. The, the daughter, who's also the niece, I guess, uh, does her thing and seduces and coaxes Herod into making a decision that you realize here in verse 16, he never got over the guilt of killing John the Baptist, serving his head upon a platter. And he hears about Jesus, and he hears about these followers, and what is he sure of is that John has come back from the dead, and he's going to seek his vengeance on him. Mark records a story after the disciples are sent out and before he tells us that they came back, he, he's drawing this picture from, from John's faith. Listen, John's the first follower of Jesus. He, you know, he, actually, he, he's out in front of Jesus. He's telling about the kingdom. He's, he's the first uh, you know, inklings of the gospel to go out. Hey, listen, you got to repent and turn to God. The kingdom of God is at hand, and Jesus' message will be like John's. And, and, and Mark wants us to know, listen, a life of following Jesus... This isn't fame and fortune. It's not all the things that the world promises you are the dreams that will come true. Listen, the life of following Jesus, Mark says, and I don't want you to misunderstand at all. A life of following Jesus. There's rejection. There's hardship. There's persecution. There may even be death. Because the road of Jesus' journey and the road that he's bringing the disciples on, it leads to the cross. And the Apostle Paul knew this, and he, he considered it something. He, he held it in, in honor. He said, he said but whatever I, I gained in, in, in my life before, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, indeed, everything, I, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I've suffered loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his sufferings coming like him in his death by any means possible that I may retain, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Let, let, let me ask you, if somebody were to ask you about your Christian life, you, your life as a disciple, what would in any way your, your explanation of a life as a disciple be, listen, for the sake of Christ, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. I, I, can, I can point to my life of following Christ. I can mark it by the things that I consider loss. That which I have set aside because I want more of Christ. I want to know more of him. Listen, this is not mere familiarity. It's not mere stats. 
You know, it's not interesting tidbits and knowledge and, and things in which, you know, you, you can, uh, you, the, the, uh, the, you know, the Bible trivia, you, you, this is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about knowing. You know. so, so what's this, this ministry? What's this discipleship? What's this thing Jesus is, is calling us to, this ministry of the kingdom? What's it all about? Well, rejection and suffering and, 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 and death and it reminds us, since Swindoll helps us, I don't want to suffer persecution. I don't either. And I don't long for a painful martyr's death. But I'll accept them if they come. My great hope is, regardless of how I die, my last breath brings glory to my Savior. May it be for all of us. It goes from there, and in famous story that's recorded in all the Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Start with me in verse 30. The apostles, they returned to Jesus and told him all that they'd done and, and, and taught. And it's time for a break now. Hey, listen, good. You, you did this, and I don't know how long it is. Uh, they, they come back, probably not too long. They, they tell Jesus, begin to tell him the stories. Since his ministry began, they've been keeping a pace, and so it's time to, to rest. And verse 31, they said to him, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. And then they went in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many, in verse 33, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. They, they, you know, they, they see the journey, they, they, you know, in the traveling by boat maybe from one side over to the other, and somebody says, oh, there they are. And they, and they run ahead and, to get there when they're waiting for them. You can imagine the disappointment of the disciples. In fact, you don't have to imagine. Mark's going to tell us here in a minute. Every year I go fishing with my brother. We go fly fishing. Usually someplace like Montana, you know, just to kind of get away from everything. And we spend a couple of days on the, on the river throwing flies into the water, hoping fish will bite. And at the end of the day, whether they do or not, it's not really what it's about. It's about getting away. I remember this just this last summer, though. We get into the boat. Um, it's, well, it's the brother I used to love. Let me say it that way. That's who I go with. We end up being in the boat with a guide and... Uh, I'm an introvert. My brother's an introvert on steroids, and he. Uh, we get in the boat, the, in the in the guides. Chatty is a chatty guide, and uh, begins to ask what we do, and and uh, and my brother says, oh, I, I, talks about the kind of law he does, which you know, after about a sentence, you realize, oh, that's the most boring thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. He's about my brother up there. He's a preacher and a marriage counselor. And then the guide says, Oh, I think God put you in my boat today. 
and for the next eight hours, I'll provide marriage counseling and spiritual counseling and financial counseling, employment counseling, family care, every possible thing for eight hours. Where he thinks God may have put me in the boat, I think the devil did uh, put me in the boat. I was just there to get away. This is how the disciples felt that everybody shows up. Hey, Jesus, in verse 34, when he went ashore, you got to realize he went ashore. They, they were there for rest. But when he saw the great crowd in verse 34, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so I began to teach him many things. Now John's going to do two things. He's going to give us this picture of a shepherd, and then in a little bit he's going to tell us Jesus, Jesus sets him down on green grass, and immediately what Mark is doing is he's bringing us to Psalm 23. That though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they're with me. Make me lie down in green pastures and lead me beside still waters, the psalmist will say. And Mark wants you to know this is who Jesus is. He's the great shepherd. He's the one that walks with you. He protects you and cares for you and guides you. And so, after he teaches and the disciples say, hey, listen, you've got to send these people away. They're going to be hungry. There's all these people. The towns are too far away. And Jesus looks at him and says, okay, well, why don't you feed them? And the point of the story is Jesus is wanting to put them in the place where they realize the, 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 the impossible has just been asked. That Jesus has, has put in front of us a situation that's absolutely, utterly impossible. In fact, their answer is, if we had, if we had a half a year, six months wages, a half year's income, we wouldn't have enough to feed all these people. And so Jesus turns to them and says, well, what, what is it that you do have? And you find out in verse 38, he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five, five loaves and two fish. You find out from of the Gospels, it was Andrew went and found a little kid and took his lunch from him. Brings it back to Jesus. Verse 39, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before all the people and he divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of, and of the fish. It's the leftovers. And in verse 44, and those who ate the fish, uh, or those who ate the loaves, it was 5,000 men. And there were also women and children there as well. You know, it had been interesting when Jesus says, well, why don't you feed them? 
for one of the disciples, maybe Peter, to turn around and say, Jesus, I, I'm not sure this is something we can do, but we've walked with you long enough. We know you can do it. I mean, after all that we've seen, this right up your alley, Jesus. It's not what they say. It's not usually our default response when faced with a situation that seems impossible either, is it? You know what the Bible's perspective on things that are impossible is? Jeremiah 32, 17, ah, Lord. It's you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing, nothing is too hard for you. Luke 18, 27, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Compassion, protection. Jesus sees the hunger of the multitude and steps right in. Mark's given us more of a picture. Listen, the gospel ministry, there's rejection, there's suffering, there's hardship. There's shepherding. And what Jesus does is he says, listen, this is the illustration. It's the meager resource that the disciples bring, that Jesus multiplies by his power and provides this nourishment. And then the pictures, the spiritual nourishment to a multitude, which is what makes the next little bit so interesting. And we'll, we'll end here. Jesus, in verse 45, immediately makes his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. He dismisses the crowd in 46, and then he takes leave of them, and he goes up the mountain to pray. You find out uh, in, in John's gospel that, that what Jesus is doing is he's kind of getting everybody out of there because he senses the crowd is about to take him by force and make him king, and he's not going to let anybody else set his agenda for him. So he sends them off before there's a scene. Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. The disciples get in the boat. They're paddling over to Bethsaida. It's the middle of the night, the fourth watch, about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., Jesus is standing on the shore in the dark, and he sees the disciples, and they are struggling. The wind has come up. The wind's blowing directly in their face. A storm is coming. You know, they maybe have been rowing for 12 hours now. They're exhausted, probably a little bit concerned as the waves are picking up and the white caps. Verse 48, he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he came walking on the sea, and he meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it's I. Do not be afraid. He gets in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Mark's telling us three things. They're utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, secondly. Thirdly, but their hearts 
were hardened. It's interesting that at the end of this story, he doesn't say they, they didn't understand how someone could walk on the water. Mark says they didn't understand about the loaves. It's meant to draw us in and to think, well, what, what's going on here? Well, one of the things that's happening is the way Mark tells the story that Jesus is walking on the water and he's going to pass by. What Mark's doing is he's drawing a line to the Old Testament about who God is. You find out in the Old Testament, it's only God that can walk on the waves. Job tells us that. Moses writes about it. It's who God is. He's the one that can walk upon the waves. He's also giving us an illusion of when Jesus would pass by some of his servants. In Exodus chapter 33, God is going to come and pass by Moses. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. It's meant to be a comfort. It's as though Jesus, by walking on the waves out into the middle of the night, he's saying, hey guys, we're six chapters in on this deal. Let me give you a hint. I'm God. didn't end up having the desired effect. Terror was the disciples' response, not comfort and assurance. And so the verses are curious. When Jesus says, take heart, it's I. You know what he's actually saying? It's ego. I mean, take heart. I am. It's how God introduced himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 6. Most, who are you? God says, I am. And besides being afraid of ghosts, Mark tells us three things. They're utterly astounded. They didn't understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Probably means something like this. Here's what they didn't understand. Jesus had all power and authority. Jesus... This Jesus they knew, they were familiar with, they'd been following in his ministry, they still did not understand he was God. Jesus could do what was humanly impossible. And without Jesus, they could do nothing. To move from this familiarity to know about Jesus and to come to terms with who he is, this one that says, follow me. It's to come to terms with the reality that without him, you have nothing. Without him, everything is temporary. That without him, there is no eternity in the presence of God. That without him, all of life remains impossible. But that with him, he calls you into the beginning of this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven that is 
taking seed in the midst of a broken and sinful and rebellious world and continues to grow, like he said a couple of chapters ago, this mustard seed that grows up. It cannot be stopped once it has started. And he invites you to be a part of that. Too many people are playing around with all the things they know about Jesus. And you're not following him. It's not a discipleship. They can look and go, you know, these are the things. Part of my life as a disciple, being dependent upon Jesus, means that there's, there's loss that I turn and look and I count that loss as a gain because of what I have learned and taken hold of and experienced in my life with Christ. Some of that is the sin that you leave behind. Some of that is this fierce independence that you leave behind. Some of it's the kingdom that you're trying to build for yourself that you set aside to follow Jesus. Would you follow him wherever he leads you? It's a question Mark's asking this morning. He's not soft-selling it. He's telling you the truth. He's giving you the fine print in bold letters. Will you follow him? Some of you maybe have never done that before. I'm not here to convince you. I'm here to present to you the invitation and trust that God's Spirit is working in you. And if He is, if God's Spirit's working in you, listen, this is the morning to say, yes, you know what? I'm going to follow Him. I know exactly what you're talking about. You haven't even been clear, and I know what you're talking about. Because that's the presence of God's Spirit this morning. Don't ignore that. Come talk to me, talk to Chad, find an elder this morning. Don't, don't leave here without settling that today. If you would bow with me. Father, I pray that you do what only you can do. Stir our hearts this morning. Open our eyes. Unclog our ears. Make our hearts soft. Father, I, I pray that there would be those comforted this morning that, that the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the one that leads us in the valleys of the shadow of death and says, fear not, you have nothing to fear. I am. Father, I pray that comfort would be abundant and palatable and would wash over us this morning. Father, at the same time, I pray that where conviction is needed, that, that your Spirit would do that in us. All the ways we've mistaken familiarity for your Son as faith, and that, Father, you're calling us to follow you, to be dependent upon you, to, to consider the things we've gained in our own life and our own strength as loss so that we might gain more of Christ. And we need your wisdom to help us know where those are. And so, we ask you, as believers, we ask you to convict us today. 
Father, at the end of the day, wherever it is that you've called us to follow your Son, Jesus, at the very end of our day, at the very end of our life, we want to be those that say, okay, I followed him. I did follow him. I did follow him. I set aside playing around all the things that were distracting. And I followed him. That's the gain of life. Father, help us do that. We need your help. We ask this the only way we can in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen.